This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, University of Texas at Arlington professor Stephanie Cole teaches a class on the life and work of antebellum social reformer Lucretia Mott. Today's class is doing a couple different things for us. Um, I'm going to tell you about the history of Lucretia uh, Coffin Mott, who was a noted antebellum uh, reformer, one of the most famous women of her day. Uh, and she was noted because she was an activist in the cause against slavery. She was a famous abolitionist. Uh, she opposed Indian removal and stood up for Native American rights. Uh, she was an attendee at the First Woman's Rights Convention and a frequent speaker at the women's rights meetings through the 1850s. Um, and she spoke on a number of other causes as well, major and minor of her day. She believed in religious tolerance. She believed in temperance uh, and a number of other the social, of the social causes of her day. Um, and so I'm going to uh, talk about her, uh, but I'm doing a couple of other things for you here, too. Um, a premise of this course is the idea that you um, must understand women reformers in their context of their day. And so I'm going to trace um, her personal context, which is very important. She was a Quaker, and I'll talk about what that means, but also her social context, her social and political and the religious context, the things that were going on around her. And it's my argument that the cult of domesticity, which we've talked about in previous classes, uh, the Second Great Awakening, which I've mentioned as well, were uh, a part of what helped to radicalize her, uh, to contributed to her effectiveness. Um, and so both the uh, her personal and her social context are a part of this. And as I'm talking about this, I want you to see this as modeling for your own thinking about your own reformers. Each of you is working on a reformer. And I want you to kind of weigh as you're doing your research, what's in her personal context that makes her reformer and what is in her larger context that shapes her issues um, and her effectiveness. Um, so think about it on both of those levels there. Okay, so in order to understand Lucretia Mott, I think you also have to understand what some of the other feminists of her day were like, or other women who were interested in women's opportunities. I, mean, I define feminism quite broadly as uh, uh, someone who believes that women ought to have equal opportunities, that they ought to have uh, influence. Um, and so let's look at two or three others of these women. Some of these are people that you all be looking for uh, later on this week as well. Uh, Catherine Beecher was a member of the very famous Beecher family. Her father and all her siblings were famous for their reform activism. Um, she, her sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, and which was published in 1852. Uh, 
supposedly when Lincoln met uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, oh, you're the woman who started this war, um, the civil war he met, uh, because the popularity of her book was so important in uh, stimulating um, the cause against slavery. That was Harriet Beecher. Uh, Catherine Beecher also was opposed to slavery, uh, but never married and really was more famous for her arguments about women's education. Uh, she wrote a book called The Treatise of the Domestic on the Domestic Economy, which was published in 1840, um, then republished in the 1870s, which was widely sold. I have a copy even of it um, about how to operate in your family. Beecher's, as a mother and as a housekeeper, uh, Beecher's premise was that women's special capabilities in the domestic world and as mothers suited them for influence within the home and as teachers. Um, and so she argued that women really ought to have influence only um, in the realm of um, in classrooms uh, and in, in households as mothers and, and how they raise their children. Uh, alone amongst her family and many other women of the day, Beecher actually opposed woman suffrage. She thought that if women got the vote, that they would lose their influence. Um, and, um, you know, sort of held with that. And we kind of think of her as seeing women's power as coming from the feminist realm. The second feminist I want to talk about is Maria Stewart to kind of, again, keeping Lucretia Mott in context here. Maria Stewart was born free in Connecticut in 1803. Um, her family was not wealthy. And so early on, she took on the job of, as a domestic servant in the household of a local clergyman. He had an extensive library and she was self-educated. Uh, so she learned to read. She developed an adeptness for writing. Um, and she moved to Boston in her early 20s, where she met a relatively successful free African-American shipbuilder, um, somebody who outfitted ships. His name was James Stewart. Um, they married. They did not have any children. And unfortunately, he died at a young age. Um, and in the uh, will arbitration of the will afterwards, uh, she was taken advantage of and once again found herself having to support herself. So for the rest of her life, she never married again. She took on a um, career as a public speaker, as a teacher, uh, and as an activist, as a journalist, um, and made money as she could. On occasion, she actually found herself at least one other occasion having to take work as a domestic servant um, because her own uh, ability to get jobs uh, was, uh, you know, she couldn't get one. So. Uh, Maria Stewart, I'm arguing, really reflects the notions of intersectionality, not phrases, of course, at all that they would have used uh, in the antebellum period. Um, but what she was saying was that uh, her causes centered on women's ability and right to speak publicly against the causes of slavery, um, that women's voices were needed to end slavery uh, and to push back against slavery. Um, and so while she was using, you know, and arguing for the idea that women ought to have a public voice, it was in this cause mainly of slavery. 
And the third woman I want to put in this context uh, is Louisa McCord, uh, who was the daughter of uh, Langdon Cheeves, a very famous South Carolina uh, politician. Uh, he was a wealthy planter and she grew up on a wealthy plantation with several brothers. Uh, the story goes that she hid uh, when her brother's tutor came so that she could hear his lessons as well and uh, eventually convinced her father that she ought to be formally included um, in the education that her brothers was were receiving, uh, counter to the expectations of young women of her day. Most young women of her day in the South were taught French and watercolor and uh, embroidery. All right, but she was taught much more. Uh, Louisa McCord published rather frequently. Of course, she didn't have to make a living publishing at all, but um, she married at the age of 30 and had five children and continued to publish because, of course, she had plenty of domestic service. Uh, and her husband actually supported her public voice, um, although she often wrote under pseudonym too, historians believe. Um, her theories were embedded in her own dependence uh, and the dependence of her region on racial slavery. And in her mind, uh, the idea that racial slavery, which reflected um, the, the context of natural, a natural order that black was naturally subordinate to white, if you questioned that natural subordination, then you are also questioning the natural subordination of women to men. Or if, let's put that the other way around, if you question the subordination of women to men, you were questioning the subordination of black to white. That made no sense. God made a natural hierarchy for a reason. Women's influence was as subordinate within households. They had duties, not public responsibilities, uh, according to McCord. Okay, so Lucretia Mott uh, was born in 1793 in Nantucket uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, she was both the daughter and eventually the wife of merchants. Um, so she had a relatively comfortable life, materially speaking. Um, and but she was raised as a Quaker um, and her parents um, uh, sent her initially to a private school, but didn't like the way the private school was giving her airs above others. Uh, so then they sent her to a free school just to kind of give you an idea early on uh, about the influence of Quaker modesty um, and the notion that uh, we are all equal and we all have an inner light. We need to be free of the trappings. This is Quaker theology. We need to be free of the trappings of this world so that we can hear God's message to us, uh, what God is telling us to do and what he means for us to do. Um, and so Quakers, um, Quaker meetings were often marked by silence um, so that people could listen. Um, and there were men's and women's uh, sessions and women could speak, um, mostly to other women, but they could speak in all Quaker meetings. Um, it wasn't the notion that uh, women didn't have a spiritual life and a, and a voice uh, to be heard. Um, Mott was eventually sent to a rather famous uh, Quaker school 
known as the Non-Partner School, uh, where she did two things. She finished her education and she also met her future husband, uh, James Mott. The picture I'm showing you here, these are the two images that were on the wall of her classroom at Non-Partner School. Uh, and I want you to kind of think about what it would be like if you were in a mostly barren uh, classroom with these images. The image on the left is the famous Thomas Clarkson anti-slavery image. It's part of the abolitionist movement in Britain, uh, and it is a rendering of what a slave ship looked like. Um, it's not an actual picture of what a slave ship looked like, but it is a political tract uh, to demonstrate the inhumanity of uh, transporting slaves from Africa to the New World, um, that the, the transportation, the trade in and of itself was inhumane. The other image in the classroom is a picture of William Penn, um, the first Quaker, uh, the preeminent Quaker, I guess, in uh, the United States, um, who was uh, in the period in which Pennsylvania was a colony, uh, worked with the Native Americans that were in the community. And this is a, a, a famous painting of a treaty signing between William Penn uh, and the Native Americans found in, um, in Pennsylvania. These are the kind of images that as a young girl forward, uh, Mott would have been exposed to and thought about and would have been a part um, of her world. After she uh, graduated from non-partner school, she became an instructor there, as did James Mott. Um, uh, she became incensed when she learned that her salary as a full-time instructor was $40 uh, a term and his salary was $100 a term. Um, she married him anyway. I guess she didn't think of it as his fault uh, that he was paid so much more uh, and that, it, you know, this inconsistency in Quaker egalitarianism didn't extend to salaries uh, uh, as well. Um, but they married um, and moved to uh, Philadelphia where they moved into this modest dwelling here, although quite a nice one for the day. Uh, they had six children, five that lived to adulthood. Uh, Mott uh, was famous actually for her housekeeping and for rolling out pies as people were meeting in her living room um, and listening and contributing even as she carried on her domestic responsibilities. Um, she began speaking uh, publicly at Quaker meetings, well, publicly in the meeting, in 1818, when she was only 25 years old, um, and she continued on with other charitable work typical of middle class women of her day. Uh, by 1821, she was formally recognized as a Quaker minister in the Philadelphia meeting uh, and began traveling to give sermons and public lectures on abolition, nonviolence and peace, Native American rights, the immorality of Indian removal, freedom of religion and any number of other uh, 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 causes that she spoke to. As a minister, she was not allowed to be paid when she spoke publicly. They referred to that as hireling preachers in the Quaker world. Uh, and so Coffin, uh, her, she depended upon uh, the income of her husband, James Mott. In 1830, uh, eight, she and her husband were a part of the founding of the American Anti-Slavery Society, which had a Philadelphia chapter as well. Um, you'll note in this image um, that there are several women in the founding here. She helped to draw, uh, draft the mission statement, though as a woman, she was not allowed to sign it. 
One of the other things you'll notice is she's sitting beside James Fortin here, uh, an African-American uh, sailmaker, member of the middle class, an active abolitionist um, in the Philadelphia community. Um, she then went on a few days after the founding of the American Anti-Slavery Society to found the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, uh, which was one of the earliest women's anti-slavery societies and the longest lived. It lasted until 1870 uh, when the 15th Amendment, 14th and 15th Amendments uh, were um, uh, ratified. Uh, it's noted, they were noted not only for um, uh, being uh, advocating speaking in what they called in the language of the day promiscuous audiences. Promiscuous meant men and women were there um, in the audiences. Uh, but also the PPAS uh, was also uh, interracial. Eight of the 45 original members were in fact African-Americans. Um, and they regularly challenged racism even within their own movement. Um, Anti-slavery people in general were for the end of slavery. Abolitionists wanted slavery abolished immediately. Lucretia Mott was an immediatist, an abolitionist and also someone that thought that African-Americans uh, should be given civil rights immediately upon abolition. This put her on the far left fringe of the anti-slavery movement uh, of the 1830s. Um, despite being on the far left fringe, she was a really good speaker, uh, really well liked. Um, and so she was uh, chosen as one of the seven, I think seven delegates to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in 1840. But she arrived in uh, London along with her husband, James Mott, to discover that this convention, despite vigorous uh, uh, protest by the Americans, decided not to seat women. So it's a convention which all the people who are trying to organize to figure out how to persuade people around uh, Europe and the Americas to oppose slavery, to politically organize against it, to do what they could to end this system of slavery because of its sort of human rights violations. And yet women were second class members of the organization. So uh, she, this did not bother her as much as some people, but Garrison, uh, who was William Lloyd Garrison, who's also a delegate and a famous abolitionist, um, uh, in protest went up and sat in the gallery with her. And the other person she met in the gallery um, while uh, uh, sent up there to not be on the floor of this convention was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. As Elizabeth uh, Cady Stanton's husband was also a member of this delegation. They had recently begun, become married. Um, this was their honeymoon. For their honeymoon, they went to this anti-slavery convention in London. Uh, and the two of them began to talk and developed a friendship. Later, Stanton said that it was this meeting that led to the development of a woman's rights movement per se, uh, at least her, her part in the leadership. Um, I think, you know, there's eight years between this and Seneca Falls. Um, so I think there's probably a lot more going on here. Um, and I think also there's a lot more than women's rights movement than just this idea of, of um, women's civil rights, which Stanton tended to focus on. 
So um, let's jump ahead to 1848 and get to this particular point. In her travels, uh, I think speaking mostly on Native American issues in New York uh, in 1848, Lucretia Mott was visiting this woman, another Quaker, Jane Hunt, in June of 1848. And they invited over Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who lived in the neighborhood. Uh, and this is uh, Martha Wright is actually Lucretia Mott's sister. Um, and another woman who lived in New York, they got together and they decided that, in fact, they should have a convention like anti-slavery conventions of the day, but it should be dedicated to women's rights. Um, and so they had this convention. Um, by the way, I like to point this out whenever you get involved in some sort of long-range planting. This is in an era, of course, before any kind of major technology. Um, they decided to have the meeting, they put out the call, and they held the meeting in less than one month, right? <laughs> and later in the summer of June of 1848, they actually had the Seneca Falls uh, Convention. Mott's husband chaired uh, the convention because there were going to be men and women in attendance on the second day. Uh, and there they passed the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions, uh, which was debated by the convention as a whole and then signed by 100 attendees. Right, I've asked you all to, to look a little bit about that at that resolution, um, and I'm going to ask a question about it here in a minute. This is what was produced afterwards, and you can see the prominent place of Lucretia Mott towards the top of the uh, at the top of the list here. These are the women who signed uh, the resolutions after they were passed, and it's kind of interesting because Mott, though she's at the top of the list and agreed and helped to draft most of those resolutions was not an advocate of the resolution that caught the most attention um, and is also the most, one of the most, um, what we remember Seneca Falls for. And that is the resolution that asked for uh, women's right to vote. Um, so, um, it's interesting, why did Lucretia Mott oppose, uh, not, well, not support necessarily the right to vote? Uh, part of this is kind of Quaker aestheticism. A lot of Quakers thought that being a part of a public system like the United States, that also in its other branches supported racial slavery, um, made you less pure, right? And so they opposed it on those grounds. Um, they also opposed it because they thought that, um, she also thought that it was not really where attention needed to be. Now, some people thought that asking for the vote made you look silly, that wasn't Mott. She didn't think it made it silly to look for the vote, uh, but she really thought that um, women should be concentrating at a more basic level at what the inequalities in their society were, that a solution like the vote that the state would grant you uh, was uh, not deep enough, not systemic enough uh, to change the status of women. And now we're at the heart of why I call her a radical. I think radical means that you are challenging the system, right? Um, the systems that grant you the privileges, the racial, the marriage systems, the gender systems, um, all of those things, 
she thought in almost all the major systems of her day, she really thought at their heart were part of the problem that women and of course uh, slavery um, was built upon. And so she saw the vote as a little too upper level, too superficial, um, though she did sign on uh, to the cause. Here she is in one of her most preeminent, you know, kind of primary causes, uh, the women's rights. She gave this one much later. So there were 1848 was the first, uh, Seneca Falls was the first women's rights meeting. They were every year except for 1857 until the start of the war. Then they began again in 1865 and continued through 1869. So Seneca Falls was the first of about 15 antebellum women's rights uh, meetings. Um, here's one of them that she I chose in this quote because she says it so clearly here. Um, one of her major causes, uh, it's not Christianity, but priestcraft that is subjective woman as we find her. Um, what do y'all think she means here uh, when she says um, that uh, it's priestcraft that is the problem? Anybody have an idea about what she's what she's uh, talking about here and what, what change she wants. Go ahead, Nick. Well, I think it's, you know, saying that, you know, in the core teachings and, and uh, tenements of Christianity, there isn't actually any uh, encouragement of subjugation of women. That's more a product of men and the people who are spreading and, uh, and preaching a certain uh, view on Christianity that they endorsed that would uh, maintain and continue a status quo with which they are uh, benefiting from or at least comfortable with. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the operators, it's not mm -hmm. the ideas, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, she's talking about the, the Catholic Church here, uh, but at this point, the only people beyond Quakers that allowed women to speak publicly are um, uh, some of the Methodists, some of the Free Will Baptists um, allowed women to speak, um, Unitarians, some. Uh, but but that those are the groups that mostly allowed uh, women to speak. And she said, you know, Morality is a key issue. Theology is a key issue. And you need women's voices. If you don't upend the rules that keep women from being able to speak um, uh, and to think and to engage in the ideas of Christianity, then you have uh, in the systemic decision to keep women silent helped sustain the problem. Right. So there's one idea that's really important um, is, is that she really thought that women ought to have more religious influence in the religious realm uh, than they did. Anybody else? Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, um, I think that it's kind of interesting that she's mentioning this because if um, I've taken some medieval history classes and um, women were allowed for a very long time in the medieval era to be a part of the church and religion. And then suddenly it changed. So I see where she's coming from, where she says it's ill used and that it became almost corrupted mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, that that was not how it was originally 
is that it was equal almost. And, and even if it was originally meant that way, it was not, uh, or not originally meant that way, but created in that way that, that it is, as you say, ill-used. It's part of the problem itself. All right. The point I want to kind of make here is that Ma is really, has her religious perspectives established well before the rise of other Protestant uh, religious revivals that happen in this time period. Um, she's ahead of this curve, but what I want to suggest to you is that part of the context that makes Mott's popularity possible um, and, um, and creates a, um, a, a radical potential for her age comes from um, a widespread religious revival through the 1820s up to the 1850s, the Second Great Awakening. And I've mentioned this before um, uh, to you all as part of the cult of, uh, it's responsible and helpful, responsible for the cult of domesticity. But I want to make sure that we understand the theology of this moment um, and uh, the, the ideas that are behind the religious revivals of the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s um, are that um, the new millennium is at hand, uh, that Christ's second coming is imminent, um, and so we must be preparing for Christ's arrival. Um, the idea is that Christ will almost certainly come to the United States, this new special place, uh, when he returns to earth for his new thousand-year reign. Um, and so Americans in particular have to be ready for this return. And here's the most important part. In order to get ready for Christ's uh, imminent return, all Americans have to choose salvation. It's in their hands to choose their salvation through their faith and religious work works, um, separate from those Puritans that we talked about earlier. They really uh, embrace the notion that every person has the potential to earn salvation through faith and good works. Um, and in fact, it is their obligation to, to go forward and to try to perfect society. That's the theology of the Second Great Awakening. And it's led by people like this man, Charles Grandison Finney, who had a whole method as well um, that they really tried to make people consider what their um, obligations were towards perfectionism and getting uh, the United States to evangel uh, evangelize uh, and to reform society. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. About two-thirds in certain areas of where the revivals were most uh, dominant, say in western New York, about two-thirds of converts were female. Uh, Finney himself um, had a process whereby he would create what he called the anxious bench at the front of the uh, congregation where he was giving this revival sermon. And he made sure that women were amongst those on the anxious bench uh, because he believed both in their moral piety, but also in their, their ability and willingness to hear his words, uh, the emotion in his words, and to uh, to 
to reach out <laughs> in the revival itself, to claim salvation, to claim their calling in the revival itself. So women were a part of this um, religious movement that talked about perfectibility, about the obligation to reform society, about um, you know the immorality of staying silent at a moment of such um, enormous possibility of preparing for the second reign of Christ. So that's one major part of a radical context uh, that Mott uh, operated within. Didn't create, but operated within. Another element is that cult of domesticity that we've been talking about here. This idea that women um, have a special set of qualities that make them reformers because they are more moral and more pious, um, that they have an influence as mothers and within the domestic sphere, and that because they have special qualities, some more moral, uh, in fact, Sarah Josepha Hale referred to women as God's moral agents, right? Um, some people argued that women were actually more moral um, than men. Because they had these special qualities, they were to be a part of relationships that, uh, marriages that respected both halves of uh, these complementary natures, complementary with the E, not you look pretty with the I, but complement as in they fit together. Um, and so there's that notion of complementary attributes of male and female. You know, we look at this and we know that we associate particularly religious women or particularly domestic women as often being more politically conservative, right? You probably think that um, this cult of domesticity sounds just like June Cleaver, 1950s, your grandmother's whatever, right? If you look at it in the context of what it was juxtaposed to, though, in the 19th century, it's got a much more radical potential. Because what it's saying is that women have attributes that complement men, they live in subordination and submissive in marriages because they're naturally submissive, um, because, but, and, and because they can exercise their influence within the household, not, as an earlier era would have said, because they are weak, because they have to be controlled, they need strong patriarchs to keep them from um, ruining um, communities by following their sex drive uh, to break up other uh, relationships, that a strong patriarch is needed because women are weak. The cult of domesticity says something different. It says women are by their natures more moral, uh, more pious, more pure. Uh, than men, um, and that, that that gives them influence. And so my argument is that, that Mott is not just um, uh, where she is because of her Quaker background and because her kind of uh, deeply held egalitarian views that were inculcated at an early age and developed over the course of her religious upbringing, but that she's also a part of a society that is acknowledging uh, women's roles um, and acknowledging a particular influence um, that women might have. Okay, so here's another one here. 
um, to, to think about. So I'm, here's her context. What is she actually saying? Uh, we would all admit the difference that our great beneficent creator has made in the relation of man to woman, um, and we wouldn't seek to disturb this relation, but we deny the present position of women as her true sphere of usefulness, um, and she won't attain that true sphere um, until the disabilities, disadvantages, religious civil, which impede her progress, are taken out, um, uh, removed from her way. What are the religious sensibilities uh, or the disadvantages that she's talking about here. Does somebody have their hand up? Uh, I did uh, a little bit earlier just because I just wanted to clarify like the on the differentiation between uh, the changing attitude on women is that like previously it was that women you know need these types of structural you know manifestations and the change was that while women might be submissive or whatever in certain contexts, it's an active choice versus a forceful subjugation of necessity. A uh, choice or that it actually works out well because women have attributes that make them suited here. Okay. So just slightly different. I mean, choice be, maybe. Um, and in fact, there is something that Mott's kind of pushing back on there. But yeah. Um, and then I, I guess in terms of disadvantages, it, it, it would be uh, by true uh, capability or, yeah, the, the ability to be independent, I guess. Like re religiously, would that be... I don't know, like divorce. I know, I know, we're gonna talk about that on Thursday, I guess. But well, I mean, part of what they heard their complaint about divorce was that it you couldn't both sides initiate it. Yeah. Within marriage, women were quote unquote civilly dead, right, covered by the identity of their husbands. Um. Other things that appear in the Declaration of Sentiments. Anybody catch any of those? can't speak in church, civilly dead in marriage. Here's one I think that's particularly interesting. Men are assumed uh, to, sins absolved in men are not absolved in women, right? So wouldn't yeah. that be like the expectations are different? Like the expectations of like sinning are, are more for women, but the if you put them on men, then they're not really that big of a deal. And in particular, I think what she's talking about, what they're referring to here is the double standard in terms of uh, uh, sexuality, right? Men, men are interested in sex. If women ever stray in those ways, um, they've committed an unpardonable and natural sin. Um, so if you, you know, I commend those to you, those declaration of sentiments, they list all them and then they have all these resolutions. And most of the resolutions have to do with the idea that women ought to be able to control more property. They ought to be able to um, speak up and, and teach both religiously and elsewhere, um, that they ought to be able to have some control within their marriages. Um, and that they ought to be able to have the elective franchise. They ought to have the right to vote. Um, so they, she's, this is suggesting that there's all kinds of things that are actually impeding them um, beyond um, the 
um, the causes of um, just the vote. Um, and so I want to go back and look on to the very next one. What is she saying here? So circumscribed have been women's limits that she does not realize the misery of her condition. Such dupes are men to custom that even in servitude, the worst of ills comes to be thought a good till down from sire to son is kept and guarded as a sacred thing. What is she talking about here? Uh, Abby? I think that what she's saying is kind of like, you don't know you feel bad until you're feeling better. So you're, you think that this is normal, but in reality you're being hurt. And she's saying, don't y'all see that this is going on, that we don't know better, hmm. that we will feel better when this is. That women, that women and their families and the people who love them are part of the problem, right? That the ways in which women operate within a household as near servants within those households, as the, uh, as the people who are expected to sacrifice every time, um, you know, their assumption that their, all of their sacrifices are an aspect of, of love, right? Um, that is the, the assumption here that, um, that women are um, a part of the process and that it is in the politics of their household, right? And so this is really what I hold up to you as um, the, the, another one of the most radical elements of what Mott was about, because she's saying it is the politics of the household. It is the way in which fathers and sons, wives and children within households operate um, that keep women in a hurt in a position of hurt, as Abby put it, uh, in a position in which they have no um, options themselves. Um, and so they um, this is part of the problem, um, she's saying, is that it's personal relationships that keep women down. The foundation of the household itself is oppressing women. One of the radical statements of the second wave or a, the 1970s version of feminism was that the personal is political, right? Personal relationships have implications for power in society as a whole. Lucretia Mott sang that in 1854. Nick, did you have anything else you want to add in there? Well, I was so to what extent was Lucretia Mott like in line with those ideas of the Second Great Awakening and those views on women um, as complementary or, you know, things like that? suggesting is that women ought to have influence. Uh, they ought to be able to reform. They ought to be able to carry on in a kind of public way. Um, and, and yet they're not um, able to uh, because of, of the kind of treatment of them as, as servants. So she's saying that their own um, qualities as women. She's not challenging that women are different from men, right? No. Um, it's not a kind of liberal individualist notion. She's accepting the idea that women and men um, are, no, uh, are, you know, are different. 
that women aren't able to express the full nature of their contributions. Um, uh, the question here is that, you know, what, was she uh, punished for taking on such a line? Um, you know, not everybody, she wasn't everybody's cup of tea, uh, but she was so forthright in the way that she spoke about them um, uh, and, and so true to her own um, causes that she um, was really... Um, and and perhaps I would guess if I were, you know, if I were completely honest here, she's also sheltered a good bit by her own class status. Um, she's not making her own living here, uh, but but she's not um, she was not excoriated in her own day. Uh, people saw her as being extraordinarily principled. Uh, maybe even a little too principled. Right. Um, so another you know, to, to make that point in the anti-slavery campaign there was a division amongst abolitionists about whether or not um, both men and women uh, whether or not well there was the uh, division about whether or not women ought to be able to speak and that split up some of the uh, abolitionists set that controversy aside um, there was also an argument about whether or not women should um, any of the anti-slavers should pay to get an escaped slave out of slavery. So for example, Frederick Douglass, a famous abolitionist, had escaped slavery in Maryland and was still sought after by his former master. And a group of abolitionists paid his master to free him. Um, and Mott saw that as a unprincipled stand because no human should be able to be sold. So she and her her group never used their money uh, to pay for uh, as, uh, slaves, enslaved people to earn their freedom, um, which is kind of a, a principled stand. But if you were a former slave, I'm not sure you would have agreed to that principled stand. Certainly Douglas didn't. Right. Yeah, Megan. Um, so by personal relationships, um, does she mean that it's kind of hard for a woman to go out and protest and reform when her own husband is opposed to the cause? Um, yes, I think that would be part of it. You know, you had to have a husband who agreed. Um, and, and if you were a true woman, you should have been able to, um, you know, pursue your own moral callings. Um, and that would be an example of what she's talking about, about how women can't um, reach their own sphere until they are let go by, you know, by, by the oppression of the household. Yeah, Lindsay. So my question is referring to what you just um, explained about, like, she wouldn't, they, a group that had her same beliefs would not put money into um, get back slaves that were, that escaped. So was it cheaper to get your slave back that way or just to get a new one? You mean from the perspective of the slave owners? Yes, because I'm like, why would you pay to like hunt down your old slave? Wouldn't it just be cheaper to get a new one to replace it? Like, what's the big deal about getting that specific one? Is it just? Yeah, no, it, no, the capital. We're talking uh, by, by the, um, it depends on where you're talking about and when, but by the 1850s. There's no slave trade. Uh, yes, and so there's a in somewhat a finite capacity. By the 1850s, the value of cotton was such, uh, and the supply of enslaved people was such that 
an active, you know, a, an adept male slave cost uh, $1,500 uh, in that era, which would be in the tens of thousands in our own. It was an enormous capital investment. Okay, thank you. And the, the like, desire not to, like, pay to kind of free a an escaped slave of those ties is is like in in line with the same thing is not really pushing for the right to vote like it's like investing in and participating in that system is a legitimization of it as an acknowledgement of its validity yes okay that's a good way of putting it all right the last point i want to make here is about her own uh her own marriage um and her own household here. Um, and this is actually in Lucretia Mott's own hand written just months before she died. Um, in a true marriage relation, the independence of the husband and the wife is equal, their dependence mutual, and their obligation reciprocal. Mott's talking about a certain sort of relationship in which um, husbands and wives are a unified, a companionate group here, a companionate pairing, not one in which the relationship is economic in nature, um, that it's particularly uneven in terms of hierarchy, that she has to ask permissions uh, for X or Y. They do things as a team. Um, and this is, you know, uh, an, uh, uh, a way in which people talk about good marriages today. Um, I think the, the idea that she you know, that she's calling for it then does uh, put her again in the very modern or uh, sort of ahead of her time perspective, but it's not for the radical groups in which she was um, a part of. They really did see um, the, the development of these relationships, of household relationships, as being uh, on the forefront of being able to challenge um, uh, the wrongs of their society overall, that it started in the household. And in fact, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, when he talked about this, and this is a later home of the Mots, um, talked about the nature of their household and their relationship as a little heaven, um, a little heaven below the real heaven. Um, they were a, a, a kind of personal relationship that really shone um, uh, to the, the world as a, whole, as a whole about how to act um, and how you got real change. Um, and I would suggest to you that that, that is in many ways a, a very systemic and significant change um, in society. Um, so I'll recap here a little bit. Um, I've suggested that Mott herself is a radical because of her own causes, um, that in particular, merging out of her own personal religious beliefs um, about inner lights and egalitarianism, uh, but that she was a part of a context in which religious beliefs were calling everyone to bring a whole new set of assumptions uh, to social reform and to attempt to perfect American society, men and women alike. She's also part of a, um, a new ideology of womanhood that has broad implications, in particular, um, giving women um, a role within not just households, but within the public sphere. And so in challenging the idea that 
or, or putting forward the idea, I guess, that marriage was a, a good marriage was a critical aspect of good reform. It's where good reform and good politics started. Then what these people are doing is really blurring the lines between public and private. So the the era that the name we often use for this sphere, this era is the era of separate spheres, right? Or that they claimed uh, this interest in separate spheres. Um, but what these uh, Mott and her fellow uh, radical feminists were arguing is that that was a rhetorical line and that you could not be effective in the public sphere unless you had reform within the private sphere, um, that the private was, in fact, um, political. Um, and, and, and therein, I think, lies most of what I see as um, as their radicalism, um, uh, but but also their potential for change. Uh, and the fact that, um, you know, there wasn't significant systemic change, um, well, ending slavery was systemic change, major, major systemic change. And I would argue that the abolitionists had a significant, like Mott had a significant part in that. Um, however, women who were um, uh, arguing for equal rights after the war moved almost exclusively to the cause of the vote. The vote was something the state granted. Um, while it was kind of systemically challenging to suggest that women ought to be equal to their husbands politically, so I, I get the kind of radicalism of giving women the vote. It is still a an acceptance of the notion of women as individuals um, and that change happens within sort of state-acknowledged um, uh, reforms. Um, so the post-war feminist movement in some ways was not as radical as Mott and her movement um, in the antebellum period. In the post-war period, she was um, uh, um, memorialized by Adelaide Johnson, um, who built uh, statues or created statues of Lucretia Mott alongside Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and then recreated that and gave them to Congress in 1920 um, to acknowledge the passage of the 19th Amendment 100 years ago this past month. Um, and when uh, Congress received this, more than 70 women's groups um, arrived to kind of call attention to this new landmark. Congress accepted the monument and then put it in the crypt. Um, it stayed in the basement of the Capitol between 1920 and 1997, uh, when a group of organized women finally got um, this monument to women's activism out of the basement and put it uh, into the, um, the rotunda itself. And I'd argue that that is actually kind of telling about what the vote you know, in some ways, the influence of the vote. <laughs> Thanks so much. Go to the basement. <laughs> Stay in the home. Listen to what your husband says. Um, so, um, you know, Mott's radicalism uh, was there for a later group of women to to pick up on um, and to talk about. We'll get to those by the end of the term. But um, I really like looking at her as an example of that. What questions do you have for me? All right. Uh, there's a question suggesting that she's that Mott actually thought the vote was not really what was needed. 
and it was superficial and she was proven right. And I would say, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that that's the case. I mean, women remained activists through the 20th century, but you don't see them using that vote in significant ways. There's not a gender difference uh, until the 1980s. We suspect there's a significant gender difference now um, and that it might be effective in having a political outcome. But, you know, we'll have to see in November if that's the case. Um, it took a lot more for the vote to have a more radical impact uh, than people. Uh, uh, eventually, it did have a significant impact in politics, but it wasn't immediate because the personal relationships within households meant that women generally voted as their husbands and fathers voted and didn't vote separately, you know, as, as women for a long time. Any other questions for me on this front? Yeah, Abby. This isn't exactly a question, but it's a, a kind of a comment um, about what you just said about the voting not being super um, important, like superficial. And I wonder how much the culture and like, I don't know if it was overt or not, but kind of like the use of like news and things like that would have been to getting women to vote like their husbands versus like them they themselves would think. Well, to put it in the language of the of the examples that I've used here, you know, uh, in that one quote, she's saying that women are dupes themselves, and it's their 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 dupeness, <laughs> their being servants is seen as a sacred thing, right? And so, if you give women the vote. Um, and don't give them access to developing the news they need. Uh, don't suggest that they ought to be autonomous within their own households and make their own decisions. Um, giving women the vote was not enough uh, until you sort of changed the economics um, of, of the country, uh, the 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 way people related within marriages and households, you gave women more autonomy overall, the vote was meaningless. So eventually what happens, of course, is, and I think this is part of what you're suggesting, that you know women do get access to news and other formats um, and, and ways of informing themselves and organizing apart from being members of, of families, right? Um, and that, that leads to revolutionary change. That gets us out of the correct. <laughs> Thank <Into> you. <laughs> Anything else? Well then, okay, if there's nothing else, I'll see you Thursday. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.